mindfulness mode. I am standing there without anything between them and me, and I am joining them in movement. Hey, Mindful Tribe, if you have a podcast or know someone who does, you should listen to the podcast engineering show with my friend Chris Curran. And here he is with a quick word of congratulations regarding my five-year anniversary. Hi, Bruce. Congratulations on five years of the Mindfulness Mode podcast. You have impacted so many people with such wonderful messages and episodes and You really put your heart into your show, and it's very apparent, and I'm so proud of you. And I'm so happy I was able to be on episode number 70, which was great. So thanks again, Bruce. Keep going. We support you all the way, my friend. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness here on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Mindful Tribe. I'm feeling so much gratitude today because I'm sitting here looking at my guest and she's got a beautiful smile and she's a woman who has helped so many people and has an incredible ability to help people through movement and through dance. And we're going to discover so much about how she helps people, people who are suffering from addiction and suffering from other uh, challenges in their lives. And she helps them to re-identify with who they are. My guest today is Kendra Karane. Kendra, are you in mindfulness mode today? Well, that is such a wonderful introduction. Thank you, Bruce. I really appreciate you inviting me to be here. I'm, I'm thrilled to speak to you about mindfulness and to share our thoughts with, with your listeners. And yes, I am in mindfulness mode. Well, Kendra works at a facility in New York City. We're going to be talking all about this. It's called Wellbridge, and she oversees creative arts therapy and wellness at Wellbridge. She uses dance and movement as therapy to help individuals regain their identity and to be re-empowered so they can be seen, heard, and understood. Many of the people she works with are struggling with addiction and other issues, and she uses a combination of recreational therapy, fitness programming, and nutrition to promote restoration and healthy lifestyle choices. So what does mindfulness mean to you, Kendra? And then we'll get into exactly what you do and how you help people. But I want to start with this mindfulness piece. Yeah, I've thought a lot about mindfulness, not only in preparation for today's episode, but as a way of leading my life and my work as a clinician. And, you know, at Wellbridge, Wellbridge, we're working to be mindful of the patient experience, but we're also inviting our patients to be mindful of their own experience. And we have to ask ourselves, what do we really mean by that? When we ask ourselves or someone else to be mindful. Um, And essentially, mindfulness is a practice that takes place in the present moment. It is a process of being fully aware, uh, witnessing ourselves in the world, and gaining a little bit of insight into our human experiences and our emotional state uh, as a way of accessing our emotions and and just understanding what's going on. Now, um, I will say that mindfulness is not always something that is intuitive, I certainly, um, can't say that I, I knew how to be mindful at a young age or even as, as an adolescent. But the good news is that it's something that can be taught and something that can be learned. 
And as we practice, we can really refine our mindfulness skills and um, and cultivate a deeper awareness over time. It's, it's something that can be strengthened. Well, I'm fascinated with this this uh, place where you work, Wellbridge. It just opened this year. Tell us more about it. Yes, we just opened earlier this year. We're a brand new facility. We're designed specifically for the treatment of addiction. We are integrating clinical care, research, and community education all on one campus. And we're designed to inspire collaboration between clinicians and researchers, but also with our patients directly. We're really trying to lay the groundwork for sustained recovery, strong communities, and we're, we're looking for ways to make uh, addiction treatment more accessible, um, which is one of the reasons why I'm so excited and grateful to have been able to design a creative arts therapy center um, and a wellness center that can really uh, speak to people uh, using a whole other language other than words. Wow, that must be exciting. Well, I know it's wellbridge.org. Tell us how large is the staff there at Wellbridge? You know, we are growing. We, we just opened earlier this spring, uh, so we're, we're gradually opening up. We have the capacity for, you know, I think up to 80 beds for now, um, but we're, we're gradually building up. Um, we have a detox program, which we refer to as stabilization, uh, as well as rehabilitation and residential programming. Um, and the staffing is, is reflecting of the census, which is gradually building up. So you've been working with patients there at Wellbridge. Can you share with us a little bit of insight into what some of the issues are? I mean, we know they're addiction issues, but can you get a little more specific and tell us in more detail how you are actually able to help some of the patients? That's a big question, yeah. Well, first I will say that there's a huge stigma in our society around mental health. Yes. And certainly within that, there's a huge stigma around substance use disorders. And so, uh, you know, I think that only about 10% of folks who are struggling with substance use disorders actually access treatment. So uh, again, part of our objective is to make our the treatment accessible and appealing to folks who are needing help. Now, once they make that leap to come into our onto our campus and to receive treatment, it's really a courageous and brave step. And so the first part in, in connecting with our patients is really acknowledging the the choice that they've made to take care of themselves and we're going to do our best to to support them in their journey here um, for, for me i'll speak to uh, the process of providing creative arts therapy and what that looks like um, but i found that it's it's difficult to describe creative arts therapy because it can be somewhat abstract and and most folks that i speak to have never heard of it mm-hmm. so so i want to i want to back up a little bit and just try to break down what that means creative arts therapy yeah please do Thanks. Um, So let's start with psychotherapy. We know that psychotherapy is the treatment of a mental health disorder um, provided by a trained clinician. And we tend to talk about that in society as talk therapy, right? So people come in and they talk about their issues. Now, creative arts therapy is using the arts in psychotherapy. So what is art? Well, we know that art is a language and language communicates our, our desires, our grief. It communicates our memories and wishes, and it, it also communicates a catharsis, 
So using art as a language can communicate all of these different things that we experience as human beings in a way that words sometimes don't quite tap into, or, you know, oftentimes I hear patients describe that words just aren't enough, sure. or they're not quite sufficient, or, or even finding the words can be a challenge sometimes, especially when they're going through tough times. For someone who's struggling with a substance use disorder, where they've maybe used a substance to either suppress feelings, numb out, or to, or to access them, to come into treatment here, they're given an opportunity to really feel feel their emotions in a whole new way in a safe space and using the creative arts therapies is it is learning a whole new language to communicate and and to understand what someone else is feeling but also to understand ourselves because as social beings i think we we all want to connect we want to connect with each other but we also want to connect more deeply with ourselves and creative arts therapy helps to cultivate that and I'm sure so many of your patients haven't connected through any kind of art, probably for a very long time. Would that be safe to say? I think it depends on the individual. There are certainly patients that we've brought in that have never touched a drum before. They've never, they don't define themselves as dancers. They're, they're maybe don't identify as artists in general at all. Whereas other patients have come in and they, they do, they, they brought their own guitar, they, they play an instrument. They uh, they're very familiar with with you know art classes and these kind of things. So I think it really depends on the individual. But I will say that most of them have not been familiar with creative arts therapy until they walk in the door. So it's a really exciting position for me to be in to introduce someone to a whole new world of how they can use therapy in a way that can feel maybe even less threatening or or just opening up a whole new door towards something else. And how long do you find that it often takes from the first time that you meet with a patient until they start opening up and having some progress with their treatment? That's a great question. And I think that's a question that comes up directly from patients. How long will this take? And that is so person specific, yeah. as you might imagine. Sure. You know, we each have our own way of going in and through the work and, uh, it just depends on each individual experience, their history, their readiness to engage, um, how comfortable they are with a particular modality. And and so, unfortunately, Bruce, I don't know that I can give you a sure. specific answer as to the timeline. But uh, what I will say is that we show up and, and open up the doors and provide them the space. And when patients are ready, they they're, they've got the space to do it. Sure. Do you often work one-on-one -on -one or do you almost always work in groups? How does that look? It's both. We, we're offering individual therapy as well as group therapy, specifically regarding our creative arts therapy programming. We've designed it so that at least twice a day, they have access to a structured dance movement therapy session, connecting to substance use disorders and, and the treatment. Um, and then in the afternoons, we also offer creative arts therapy groups, including music therapy, drama therapy, and art therapy. So substance use disorders, what are some of the substances we're talking about here? Patients typically come in with alcohol use disorders. Some others are coming in with opioid use disorders. I would say the most frequent is coming in for alcohol. I see. Yeah. 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 So can you tell us a story of a, of a specific person that you've uh, worked with and you've brought them through this challenge? 
Let me tell you a little bit about how I set up a, a session, and that can help you to picture what the response is from an individual. Sure. So when I invite patients to come in for a dance movement therapy session, um, they're typically seated in a circle, and there's an opportunity to check in without words at all. So the invitation is to observe what's happening on the inside without any judgment, ideally, mm -hmm. and to consider how that internal experience might be expressed outwardly to the others. And the objective is to show you who I am or how I'm feeling and for the others in the group to observe, track their own experience as they see you. And this really enhances the sense of I see you and I am seen, which again connects to our being social beings and, and wanting to connect. Uh, so in a dance movement therapy session, um, there's a moving meditation approach that begins with compassion for the body, simply being, to sit and know you're sitting, mm -hmm. to breathe and know you're breathing, and to learn that the way you may be sitting or standing or moving is just good enough. And that this is the beginning of self-acceptance and maybe the beginning of some insight and opportunity to make change happen. But in order to make change, we have to know what's happening. So through movement, the patient is tapping into what, what is it that's really happening inside and how do I feel about being seen? So I had a patient recently come in who uh, was feeling quite overwhelmed, a long trauma history, history of alcohol use, and uh, but was really ready to do the work through movement and, and incorporating mindfulness. And so she comes in and, and shows herself opening up, literally bringing her hands in front of her as if she's unzipping this old layer and peeling, peeling it off so that she can step out into the circle and to show her, her new self as a, as a sober individual working towards her treatment goals. Now, I know that you back years ago worked with survivors of 9-11. Can you tell us what you learned from that experience that you are applying now at Wellbridge? Oh, the, you know, my work with the uh, World Trade Center Clinic uh, Environmental Health Center was really really moving and rewarding and and i i worked with many individuals in a group setting for a series of dance movement therapy sessions leading up to the anniversary of 9 11 um, each year and and the work was so profound uh, they they used movement as a way to connect and bond and heal um, without necessarily using any words at all and there were such a range of emotion that they were able to access, but they were they were also able to see that they were not alone. They're not alone. They are here. They are standing. They're breathing. They're connecting, um, and and there weren't words to define what was happening. And so that yeah, that experience working with those patients has really stayed with me through the years, and it certainly feeds my experience at Wellbridge and while patients are primarily coming in here with a history of substance use disorder, so many of them have a history of trauma as well. And, and perhaps there's a link between 
what happened to them in the past and what's led to them using as a way to to cope. Um, and and sometimes that comes up in the session where they actually speak about their past traumas. And the process in the group is to use the movement as a way to move through it and again to heal, as well as to see and be seen, to connect with others, um, to receive support. And it can also be empowering to provide the support. I wanted to ask you about meditation. Do you use any elements of meditation in the work you do with your patients? Yeah. Um, so we do incorporate specific meditation groups at Wellbridge, and then we also incorporate mindfulness exercises uh, in various sessions, whether it's a specific meditation group or not. To me, meditation provides a structure or an avenue to cultivating mindfulness. And as you know, there are countless examples of different types of meditation approaches, like the 365 cardiac coherence, breath work, guided imagery, uh, med meditation, like the loving kindness work, um, transcendental meditation, repeating a mantra or sounding when you're with a collective group that can be super powerful. Um, I'm particularly drawn to more of a Vipassana style, which is, as you know, insight oriented and, and really just waiting for things to arise and observing, becoming aware of what is with us and then um, developing that non-judgment of the self. Um, and again, that's, that's also incorporated in the dance movement therapy sessions through moving meditation. Um, some might refer to it as authentic movement, but it is an experiential process where one is asking themselves, what is my impulse? What does my impulse look like? And how can I choose to either move the impulse safely or just observe it and, and sit with it? And this, this is kind of a hot topic for patients that have come in struggling with substance use disorders because um, oftentimes the impulse has been to use. And so the tendency is to suppress the impulse because the impulse is not good. So here what I'm doing in a dance movement therapy session is opening up the safe space where they can just simply observe their physical impulses and also befriend it. We need to know what, where that impulse is coming from and we need to take some time to understand a little bit more about that story. So whether that's literally moving through what this impulse looks like or just observing it can really provide some insight for the individual and, and give them a chance to notice that some of the impulses are really positive. And the more we can recognize that, the less space there might be for these, these negative impulses. I uh, want to go back to something that you said earlier, and I find this pretty interesting. You know, when you're working with people and you do some breath work or some of these exercises, I can imagine that for some of those patients, they might feel a little overwhelmed and think, oh my gosh, I'm not doing this right, or I've never been even focusing on my breath. Oh my gosh, how can I even move to this place? How do you do that? How do you uh, make it so that they're comfortable, they're not feeling overwhelmed, but at the same time, you're able to introduce some of these techniques to them. Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, it's true. Folks come into a session tending to feel a little vulnerable and exposed. We, you know, in other types of meetings, we have a computer in front of us, or we have a desk to sit behind, or even in a 
another type of creative arts therapy group, there might be an actual instrument or a piece of paper that's tangibly separating us from, from the, the person across the space. In a dance movement therapy session, we're, it's just us. There's nothing to really hide behind, even, even the words. So it can be um, a daunting experience for some individuals. And, and so this is why it's so incredibly important to create a safe space where we're setting the tone right from the beginning that in order to, to do the work here, we have to establish that whatever happens is, is physically safe, but emotionally safe. And this is true for really any therapy but it seems to really surface quickly in a dance movement therapy group where like I said, there's, there's nowhere to, to hide. And so right. as the therapist, it's my responsibility to, to be as non-judgmental as possible. Um, but also setting boundaries and limits so that it can be safe when, you know, when somebody kind of gets to that, that line. Um, and then the other piece, and I know you, you've talked a lot about uh, bullying Yes. Um, and I've been thinking about that, particularly in response to uh, our meeting today. So often patients come in with this inner critic. Yes. And it reminds me an awful lot of a bully taking over the mind. Yes. And that inner critic teases and judges them. It is not gentle or wise. And instead it criticizes the person, makes them feel small. And, and what that can look like in a dance movement therapy group is, for example, if I invite you to just check in and show how you're feeling today, and the task is really just that simple, just you can do any movement you like as long as it's safe and respectful towards yourself and towards the group. Even knowing that, patients tend to feel like the, I can't say they tend to feel, but sometimes they feel like their movement wasn't good enough. Whose voice is that? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so sometimes the question is, whose voice is that? Where is that critic coming from? And, and oftentimes the answer is myself from my own head. But at other times it's from people in their family circle or their social circle. And it can also come from our larger society. And again, there's, there's such a stigma in our society around mental health and substance use disorders. So those criticisms are often internalized and can make the person feel like that's their own, that's their own voice, that's their own inner critic, and, and they listen to it. So in, in a dance movement therapy session, we are really working to um, examine that, to notice, okay, there's that inner critic coming up again. Even when I just introduced myself through movement in, a, in five seconds, somehow there's this judgment on myself. And so how can I um, be curious about that? And how can the group support the member who's feeling a little bit self-critical in embracing the positive qualities that they do have and lessening that voice so that it it's there's just less room for that inner critic to exist. And I imagine that sometimes you need to show your vulnerability in order to help them feel safe to show their vulnerability. Is that true? As a therapist, I, I don't tend to self-disclose because it, 
it really is about the patient's work. And the more I speak about my own experience, the less space that there is for them. Okay. That said, in a dance movement therapy session, it is unique because I am standing there without anything between them and me. Right. And I am joining them in movement. I'm just, I'm not just sitting there watching. I'm, I'm joining them in their process. And so I guess in a sense it is a bit vulnerable because I'm, I'm, I am moving too. I am in my body and I'm modeling. Um, but it really is a space for them to, to speak and, and share and show what they're going through. And my work is to support them in their process and to continue to cultivate a space that um, when self-judgment arises, we can safely look at that and push it aside. So there's, again, more room for self-compassion for me to continue to be mindful and model that so that they can build their mindfulness muscles. I think that that's, uh, that's where the work is at. Right. So have you always had a love for helping people that are really suffering and really having challenges like this, or is this something that came upon you in another way? I've always been interested in the arts from a young age and I've, and I've always been interested in helping people. Um, in undergrad, I intended to just pursue psychology, but really wanted to find something that um, was creative too. And it really wasn't until much later after undergrad where I discovered that creative arts therapy exists and it's the perfect blend for me of supporting people through talk therapy, but also using the arts as, as another language to, to connect and um, and communicate what we're really feeling. So it, it was really, uh, it took a lot of work to figure out that this kind of profession exists. And once I found it, it was like an aha moment. That, okay, this is this is what I'm meant to do. This feels right. Wow, that must be incredible. As you transitioned earlier this year to start working at Wellbridge, what was one of the most wonderful things that you could share about Wellbridge itself? Well, there's so many wonderful things about Wellbridge, but to come in to a brand new facility where we can really make change happen from the ground up, I, I, I couldn't pass up this opportunity to, to start from the beginning. Um, we're partnering with a major mental health, uh, major health network, Northwell Health, to provide access to comprehensive services. Um, for me to be able to focus on creative arts therapy and wellness services, all here on campus just is a tremendous opportunity. So I, I took it. That's great. That's great. Well, we talked about bullying already. Do you have any other uh, words to say about this topic of bullying and how, you know, you've worked with so many patients and you talked about self-bullying. Do you have any other stories or any other uh, anything else to share with us about how mindfulness dovetails with bullying? Yeah, I think that, you know, again, mindfulness is noticing in the moment when a self-judgment arises. So when the inner critic or the inner bully decides to rear its head into our stream of consciousness, our stream of thoughts, it's important to r remind ourselves that the more that we can build our mindfulness muscles, the more compassion we can discover within ourselves and the less room there is for that inner critic to exist. And how do you feel COVID is 
playing a role in some of the mental health challenges that we are having in our society. I mean, I know we're right in it. We're not looking back at it. We're, we're still in it. But can you comment on that? Oh, COVID has certainly posed major challenges for everybody in our country. Um, that goes out without saying, but certainly for individuals who are needing to be part of a support network to maintain their sobriety. You know, individuals who have been used to going to AA, they can't all go to AA now because there's social distancing and, and groups are closed, meetings are closed. So, so that's all become virtual on Zoom or whatever the platform is. Um, fortunately for us, we've been able, as an essential, um, as essential workers, we are able to open up our doors and, and provide in-person care here. Um, and, but it has changed the way we practice because we're, we're all wearing masks. We're all uh, practicing hand hygiene and we're social distancing at all times. And, you know, this takes a, a village to, to make sure that we can maintain a safe space for everyone. But yes, absolutely. COVID has created unique challenges for, for everyone and most especially individuals who are struggling with addiction. Well, Kendra, I want to put out there again to our listeners, wellbridge.org is the website. And it's incredible what wonderful work you're doing there. And, you know, I, as a musician, I really applaud you for doing the work you do with the arts and helping people reach, reach, you know, their own identity through arts and movement. So that's fantastic. As we move forward in the interview, Kendra, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So the first one is this. Oh, and just 30 second answers are perfect or less. The first one is, who is one person who has been influential to you in the area of mindfulness? John Kabat-Zinn. Yeah, me too. How has mindfulness affected your emotions or those of your patients and the people you work with? Yeah, mindfulness, it's it's more than a full mind. It's our it's a bodyfulness, a heartfulness, and um, it it helps us manage our emotions or or access the emotions. Tell us how breathing is part of your own mindfulness practice. Breathing is always with us. It's a gift. We're lucky to be able to have it with us at all times, but also to manage it when we need to and it's it's an anchor it's like our home base if you could recommend a book related to mindfulness what would that be there's so many great books but i i would i'm reading currently still the mind uh it's an introduction to meditation by alan watts you may be familiar with that yes it was published posthumously i think around the year 2000 by his son um it's a wonderful uh commentary on on our connection to everything and everyone in the in the universe and i'd also recommend for those of your listeners who might be curious about creative arts therapy and mindfulness there is a theory and practice textbook um so it's called mindfulness and the arts therapies so i'd recommend that as well great can you recommend an app which can help with mindfulness there are a couple of apps that i would recommend one is 10 percent happier it's hosted by dan harris you're you're I think you're familiar with that. It's a lovely array of meditation experts. Uh, Joseph Goldstein and Sebene Selassie are my particular favorites on the on that uh, on that app. They've got such a crisp video production with interviews and different meditation exercises that you can just listen to. Handy FAQ page. It's it's just really well done. 
And the other app I would recommend just briefly is Recipe Relax Plus. It's a really simple app. It's got a nice visual with an auditory cue. It has a, a bubble that just goes up and down that you can pace your breath with. Um, it is in French, but it's so simple that I think even if you didn't speak French, you could easily navigate the app. Kendra, thank you so much for being on the show today to talk about Wellbridge. Thank you so much for having me, Bruce. I really appreciate it. And happy anniversary. You just celebrated five years. Yes, I did. That's right. Congratulations. Thank you very much. All the best to you, Kendra. Bye now. Likewise. Have a great day. Hey, Mindful Tribe, thanks for listening to the episode today. And here is my friend Clem Harrod from episode 107, where he talked about connecting with family through mindfulness. Five years? Wow, are you serious? 582 episodes of Mindfulness Mode. That's awesome. Congratulations, Bruce. You have done something amazing. You've accomplished something amazing. And my son and I were so happy to be a part of your show. And here's Connie Benjamin. Her episode was three keys to juggling work and family. Bruce, I just wanted to say congratulations on five years with your amazing podcast, Mindfulness Mode. This is absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for helping make us all more mindful. So take what we learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.